terrible cross, aren't you? You know, uh, last night we had a good night. Thank you for those of you who came out last night and had your trunks open and, and helped us, us to have a contact in our community last night. So thank you for, for being willing to come. You know, today actually is uh, October 31st, and we know that's Halloween. And tonight, scores of ghosts and goblins will be wandering the streets of Dillon. And, uh, you know, I was thinking about how it's amazing how sometimes we get fascinated by the darkness. How sometimes we get enamored by the demonic. You ever, I mean, it's like we sometimes get entertained by the devilish things. And I was thinking even about, you know, some of our North Carolina universities. Have you ever given much thought to the mascots of some of our North Carolina universities? I mean, like, for example, Wake Forest. I mean, you know, do you know who the mascot is of Wake Forest? They're called the what? The Demon Deacons. Can you imagine, you know, did you know that Wake Forest was a Baptist school at one time. They, they kind of pulled out from the Baptist back in the 1980s. But they were a Baptist school and they referred to their, their mascot as the demon deacon. Can you imagine calling your deacons demon deacons? Can you imagine that? And yet, that's what, you know, that's what their mascot is. And then I started thinking about you know, Duke. Duke was a Methodist. It was con- connected to the Methodist. And so Duke, they're known as what? The, blue, the Duke Blue Devils. It's interesting how, you know, uh, these two, and I don't know if you knew it, but Wake Forest and Duke played last night, and, and the demon deacons beat the devils. You know, I thought they were on the same team. But in reality, it's amazing how we sometimes get enamored with the darkness. And it's, it's also amazing how we would rather be connected to the darkness than the light of the world. We would rather be known as a member of the rulers of the darkness than to be on the team of the light of the world. Isn't that kind of interesting how that, that happens? And yet we see that in our, in our culture. I heard a story about a guy from Duke University who was going to a Halloween, kind of a Halloween um, costume party. He said, you know, I think I'll just dress up like a Duke Blue Devil. And it fits, right? So he dressed up like a Blue Devil and he got ready and went to this uh, Halloween party. And when he got there, he thought, I'm going to bust in. I'm going to scare everybody half to death. And, we, and so he got to that door and he just burst through that door. And when he did, he realized, hey, I'm not at a Halloween party. I'm at a church service. And whenever the, the people in that church saw that blue devil standing at the back of that church, they all started screaming and running. They were trying to get out of the doors, get out of the windows. I mean, everybody was terrified. And there's, there's this one large lady I mean, she was just terrified, and she thought, hey, i got to run for my life. So she started running, but when she did, she tripped and fell, and she got stuck under the pew. Well, this blue devil, he said, oh, I've scared these people half to death. I need to go help this lady out. So he walks over to try to help her, and she sees him coming down the aisle, and, he's, and she's screaming. She's like, you know, she's in panic mode, and she, he gets real close, and he, she finally just says, stop! I've been coming to this church all my life, but I've always been on your side. You know, that's how it is. You know, sometimes people come to church every single Sunday, but it doesn't mean they're on Jesus' side. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, Jesus said, He who is not with me is against me. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 21, the Apostle Paul says, You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of darkness. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. You can't have two masters. You cannot serve the demon and the divine. You can only have one master. Jesus said you will love the one and hate the other, but you cannot have two masters. You cannot serve two. And this morning we're talking about uh, what happens when when the demons meet the divine. 
So if you're turning your Bibles to Mark chapter 5, we're going to see a story. In Mark chapter 5, some people refer to this as the chapter for the incurables. I mean, you have the demon-possessed man, you have a diseased woman, and you have a dead child. And in, in human terms, those are all incurable. There's no hope. And we're only going to talk about one today. We're talking about this story of a, a man who was a slave to demons. This man was oppressed by demons. He was depressed by demons. And he was possessed by demons. And it's in Mark chapter 5, verse 1. So if you've got your place there, let's follow along in verse 1. It says, Then they, the disciples and Jesus, came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tomb a man with an unclean spirit, who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and neither could anyone tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. And I want you to see, first of all, the result of demons. The result of demons. And the Bible says immediately when Jesus and the disciples got out of their boat, coming across the Sea of Galilee, there met them this demoniac coming out of the tombs. And can you imagine what the disciples must have felt and thought when that happened? I mean, they had just been on the Sea of Galilee and a bad storm had come up, come up and they were terrified. They thought they were going to lose their lives. And they finally get to shore. Things are going great. And all of a sudden, a wild man comes out of the tombs yelling at them. And, and, um, and I think maybe they were probably unnerved by that. Matthew says in his gospel that this man was naked. Here comes a naked, bloody, beaten, matty, dirty, smelly man coming out of the tomb screaming at these disciples. You can only imagine what they thought. Today, this man would be classified as a mental case. I mean, he was comfortable living among the dead. And to be honest with you, the living were comfortable with him living among the dead. Because he was strange. And so this man really demonstrates what a life without Jesus really looks like spiritually. You know what? Number one, a life without Jesus is a life without restraint. It's a life without restraint. The Bible says that people tried to bind him and every time they would bind him, he would just break those chains. He was like a satanic Samson. I mean, he could just break those chains. Nothing could bind him. He was unrestrained. And I don't know about you, but whenever you look at our culture today, doesn't it look like it's unrestrained? It's like an anything goes mentality today. Whatever feels good, just do it. And we're seeing in our world a really a society that's under a demonic influence. I just read in Minneapolis, maybe you read this in the news, where in Minneapolis they want to take a vote to do away with their police force. What in essence is going on? It's we're trying to cast off all restraint. We don't want to be restrained. You know, there's always been evil in the world. Wouldn't you agree? But I don't know about you, but doesn't it just feel a little different right now? A little darker? A little bit more devilish? A little bit more demonic? It just seems like that's where we're headed right now. You know, on Wednesday nights, uh, we have a Bible study, and we're studying the book of Judges. And the theme verse for the book of Judges is this. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that's what we're seeing right now in our culture there is no king in our hearts. King Jesus is not Lord over our lives. And when that happens, everybody just does what's right in their own eyes. 
Who's the king of your heart? You know, in Proverbs 29, 18, it says, Where there is no revelation, people cast off restraint. Now, in Hosea chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, I just will read this for you. You can write it down and look it up later. But in Hosea chapter 4, verse 1, God's given a charge against the Israelites. And this is what He says. He said, there's no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. And how does that manifest itself? By swearing and lying and killing and stealing, committing adultery. God says they break all restraint. And with bloodshed upon bloodshed. Do you want to know what a society looks like without Christ? Well, there you have it. Now, in America, we have refused to think about God. We've kicked God out of our country. We don't want Him in our country. We don't want Him in our schools. We don't want Him in our government. We've kicked God out. We don't want to think about God. We don't want our children to learn about God. And what do you get when that happens? Well, you get the vulgar language that we see. You get the lying and the corruption and the violence and the stealing and the adultery and the sexual immorality. You get the murder, mass murder of the innocents is what you get. And so... When we see this demoniac in Mark chapter 5, he's really a picture of what life without the knowledge of Jesus looks like. No restraint. But not only was there no restraint, a life without Jesus is a life of being spiritually dead. He was a dead man. You say, well, he wasn't a dead man. He was walking around talking. Well, you know, I don't know about, I don't watch scary movies, but in scary movies they have zombies. And zombies are really like dead men walking, right? Well, this man was like a dead man walking. He was physically alive, but he was spiritually dead. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 6, it says this, But she who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. And this man is living among the tombs, and he's very content to be there. How many of you want to go put your house in a graveyard and live among the tombs? I mean, most people don't want to do that. I mean, that's kind of unnerving. That's kind of alarming. I mean, who wants to go live in the graveyard? When I was growing up, somebody told me, they said, you know, you don't really need to be afraid of the people in the graveyard. He said, if you're going to be afraid, be of the, one, the living ones, not the ones in the graveyard. Well, there's some truth to that. But this man was living among the dead because really he was spiritually dead. His lifestyle was a reflection of his heart. And so he was really living like his heart really was among the dead. And so if Jesus is not the master of your heart... You're just as spiritually dead as this demoniac was. He was spiritually dead. Do you know what it means to be dead? You ever thought about it? What does it mean to be dead? When you die physically, your soul separates from your body. Death is all about separation. And when you die physically, your soul will separate from the body. That's what it means to be dead. Is a separation. Did you know when you are spiritually dead, there's a separation? You are separated from God. There is a spiritual death. You are separated from God. There's a separation. Did you know the Bible talks about a second death? In Revelation chapter 20, verse 13, uh, 13, the Bible talks about a second death. It says this. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. This is an eternal separation from God. That's what a second death is. It's an eternal separation from God forever and ever and ever. Now, death is about separation. 
Now, if Jesus is not your Savior, if He's not the master of your life, then you are spiritually dead. And one day, you're going to be physically dead. And if you're spiritually dead and you're physically dead, then one day you're going to be eternally dead. Now, I want you to listen to this. I wrote this out, and I hope I can make it make sense. If you die physically while you are dead spiritually, then you will be dead eternally. That's what the Bible says. Death is all about separation. Now, you might say this morning, well, you know, Jesus is not really my Lord. He's not really my master, but I don't live like that. I don't live like that demoniac lived. I live differently. I'm a moral person. I'm a good person. You know, a rich young ruler came to Jesus one day and said, you know, Jesus, I've kept all these commandments since my youth. You know what Jesus said to him? There is none good. Not one. There are none good. And so sometimes we want to think that we're a good person. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, the Bible says that we were dead in our trespasses and sin. You know, there are no degrees of being dead, are there? I mean, let's think about it for a moment. Some people say, well, I'm not as dead as he was. I mean, think about it for a moment. Dead is dead, right? I mean, let's say you, you come up on a person and they've been dead 30 minutes. Just 30 minutes. Would you say they're just barely dead? No, you'd say they're dead, right? Because they're dead. Well, let's say you come up on somebody and they've been dead 30 minutes. Would you say they're more dead than the person who's been saved like, you know, 30 hours? No, they're dead is dead. Let's say you, you walk through the graveyard and you, you find there's a person who's been dead 30 years. Do you think he's more dead than the person who died 30 minutes ago? No, because dead is dead. And so when you, are, when you don't have Christ as your Lord, you are spiritually dead. And so the result of demons is no restraint. The result of demons is a picture of death. But I also want you to see the reality of demons. Some people think, you know, the devil and the demons, they're just kind of fairy tales. They're figments of your imagination. But there is a re- reality of demons. There's a reality of evil. You know, Martin Luther, who wrote the song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, he wrestled really with Satan on a lot of occasions. This is what he wrote about Satan in that song. He said, His power and his craft are great, and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. He understood the reality of Satan. And Mark, look at Mark 5, 8 for a moment. For he, Jesus, said to him, the demoniac... Or to the demons, he said, come out of the man, unclean spirit. And then he asked him, what is your name? And he answered, saying, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly that he would not send him out of the country. Now a large herd of swine was feeding there nearby in the mountains. So all the demons begged him, saying, send us into the swine that we may enter them. And at once Jesus gave them permission Then the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. There were about 2,000 of them. And the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. And those who fed the swine fled and they told it to the city and in the country. And they went out to see what had happened. Have you ever wondered why Jesus gave those demons permission to enter the swine? Isn't that interesting? Why did he do that? I mean, why did he give them? I mean, these demons went right into that herd. They immediately ran off the cliff and went into the Sea of Galilee and they drowned. You know, when I was growing up, and maybe some of you will know this, when I was growing up, if you wanted to call the pigs to come eat, you said a certain word. Does anybody remember what it was? Suey. See, y'all been around. Suey. 
Now, Jerry Vine said when these, when these pigs ran off that cliff, they committed suicide. I don't know. <laughs> but the reality is, they ran off that cliff. Why did Jesus give them permission? I don't know, but I speculate. The reason he did it is to validate the reality of the demonic. Because when they ran off that cliff, it was undeniable something had happened. They couldn't refute it, and the people came out to see it. And so Jesus was aware of the demonic realm. He talked about demons, and he didn't talk about them as fairy tales. He talked about Satan as a matter of fact. A number of years ago, we were in Burkina Faso. I remember this like it was yesterday. We were in Burkina Faso, and we were building a church, and we had a little medical clinic going on. And I was working on the church, and we, some of the guys were in the medical clinic, and I was working on the church, and one of our guys came over. Some of you know him, Preston Moore. Preston Moore was working in the medical clinic. He came running up to me. He said, hey, we need you over here. We think we have a demon-possessed guy. I said, okay. So I started running over there with Preston. We're going to go check out this demon-possessed guy. And I started thinking, hey, I didn't, I didn't take exorcism in seminary. And then I thought, I haven't even seen the movie Poltergeist. I mean, I am at a loss. And so I said, what am I going to do when I get over there? When I get over there, there's this man sitting there, and he's, he's this, this guy there, and his dad's there, and there's a small group of people there. And we, I said, okay, let's find out what's going on. I've got a translator. I'm trying to talk to him through this translator and find out what's going on. I said, what's your name? And that's what Jesus asked, right? What is your name? And the guy didn't say anything. And the dad said, well, his name's Moro. I said, yeah, but I need him to answer the question. I'm talking to him. I need him to answer me. I said, what is your name? And, and we were having trouble with the translator. I said, forget about it. I said, this is a demon. He knows English. I'm going to talk to him in English. And that's exactly what I did. I started talking to him in English. I said, Moro, if you want to be free, if you want to be set free, you have got to confess Jesus as Lord with your own mouth. And we went and we had this conversation. And all of a sudden, the crowd starts gathering. And we're talking to him. And over a process of time, and I don't want to, I mean, it's, it's, we're not talking about minutes. Moro finally said, Jesus is Lord with his own mouth. And that was huge because he'd been a mute. He had not been speaking. And that's why everybody thought he was demon-possessed. And so I thought, man, this is a breakthrough. He just said Jesus is Lord. I mean, he might be delivered. And then our translator said, yeah, but he's got a fetish on his ankle. And so in Burkina Faso and a lot of African countries, a witch doctor will give people a fetish, and they will put it around their neck or put it around some part of their body, and they trust it for protection, kind of like a St. Christopher medal or some kind of holy water, and that's what they were doing. And so then I said, okay, I said, uh, Maura, what is this on your ankle? And I can't describe it. His expression changed again. I thought, gosh, this is not good. And his dad said, well, it's a sign of a truce. I said, I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to Moro. I need him to tell me what it means. And his dad said, well, you know, he and his friend had a fight, and it's kind of a sign of a truce. I said, I need Moro to tell me what it means. I said, Moro, what is this? And Moro said, it means life. For him, it was a fetish. He was trusting it to give him life. I said, you cannot follow Jesus and have a fetish. You have to, got to choose. And so we built a fire. Now, by this time, a large group of people had gathered around, maybe 150, maybe more. And in Africa, people, they put a lot of confidence in witch doctors. We didn't know it at the time, but they were having a seance against us, the witch doctor was, casting spells on our team at that time. So we built a fire. I said, Moro, if you're going to follow Christ, you've got to take that off and you burn it in the fire yourself. And you know what Moro did? He took it off. And he burned it in the fire. And I didn't know what might happen. This was unnerving for us. And I thought, you know, after hours of that going on, I didn't know, how, I didn't know whether we really had a breakthrough. And, and I said, okay, you know, I told Moro, I said, listen, Sunday we're having a worship service. So we had a worship service on that next following Sunday, and Moro came. And we gave the invitation, and Moro was the first to respond. A year later, I asked Patrice, I said, how's Moro doing? He said, he's a testimony to the village. 
Now, God can deliver. And there, are, there is a real demonic force. And Jesus believed in a demonic force. He believed in an evil enemy named Satan who wants to destroy you. You know, the Apostle Peter, who was present on that day when this happened, he wrote in 1 Peter 5, 8, he said, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking him, whom he may devour. So Paul understood that there's a real demonic force and he witnessed this firsthand. And he said, he wants to destroy you. You know, the Bible says that demons are fallen angels who rebelled against God. And these demons want to destroy everything that resembles God. And I want you to think about it for a moment. John 10.10, 10, Jesus said, the thief, referring to Satan, he's come to steal, kill, and destroy. And Jesus said, but I've come that you may have life. But he's come to destroy Satan's ultimate purpose is to destroy you. He wants to destroy your home. He wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to destroy the church. Have you ever wondered why sometimes you struggle in marriage? Because Satan wants to destroy marriage because it's a reflection of Christ and his bride. Have you ever wondered why Satan wants to destroy the church? Because it's the bride of Christ. Have you ever wondered why Satan wants to destroy you? Because you are made in God's image. That's how God made you. And so when Satan looks at you, he reminds him of God. And so I look at this man, this man in the, in the tombs, and what was he doing to himself? The Bible says day and night he was taking stones and he was cutting his flesh. And I don't know this for sure, but I speculate that in, when that demon possessed that man, he thought, I don't want to deface the image of God on this man. So he began to mar himself with those stones because he wanted to remove the image of God in that man's life. Satan wants to destroy you. I don't know if you remember what happened whenever Jesus had an encounter with Satan. He wanted to tempt Jesus and, and uh, they were on the, 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 like the wall of the temple and Satan said, why don't you jump off this cliff, Jesus? What was he asking him to do? That's what Satan does. He wants us to destroy ourselves. Demons want to destroy you, but they also want to deceive you. You know, our battle with demons is not a power struggle. It's a truth struggle. In its essence, God uh, uh, gives us truth and Satan wants to deceive us. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, the Bible says, Now, the Spirit expressly says that in the latter time, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Did you know that demons have doctrine? They have a teaching and they are leading people astray and people are drinking the Kool-Aid. This world is under the sway of darkness. And so Satan is trying to deceive you. You know, it's easy whenever I look at this demoniac and how just vile he looked and how repugnant he looked when he came out of that tomb. And so it, just would, it would be distasteful to have to look at him. But that's not how Satan normally, normally operates, is it? Satan doesn't come to you with his red you know, his red outfit and his horns and his tail and his pitchfork? How does he come to you? The Bible says in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen that Satan transforms himself into an angel of light. He looks like something beautiful. He looks like something attractive. I was talking to Ricky Williams earlier this morning. I went with Ricky a number of years ago when he was trapping. Ricky Williams is an expert trapper. But this is what he says. He said, but it's all about deception because I'll set the stage. I'll set the trap. And then I put something over here to divert their attention. And they're no longer even thinking about where they're about to step. He said, I'll lead them to step exactly where I want. And when I do, I've got them. That's what Satan does. He deceives you. He gets you looking over here and he's deceiving you the whole time. 
Satan wants to deceive you and he portrays himself as an angel of light. He quotes scripture, but he always does it out of context. He always gives you a lot of truth, but mixed with a little bit of lie. And so it sounds so smooth. He will say things to you like this. If you love God, you know, you'll love others and you'll love their lifestyle, even if it's wicked and different from yours. He'll say, you know what? God's all about love. He's not going to let anybody go to hell. God loves you. God loves everybody. Nobody goes to hell. That's the lie of the devil. Now, God's not going to send anybody to hell. That's a fact. Your sin will send you to hell. The Bible already says that the wages of sin is death. We're all going to face that reality. There's got to be a payment for sin. But you know, whenever Jesus came to this earth, and we just sang about the beautiful, wonderful cross, when Jesus came, He came to pay for that sin. For us. He became sin for us on the cross. You know, you cannot be righteous enough to be saved. How many of you would trust your best ten minutes on this earth to save you from your sin? I wouldn't dare trust my best 10 minutes on this earth to save me from my sin. But when Jesus died on the cross, he paid my sin debt in full. You know what second, I mean, Colossians chapter 2, verse 14 says? Colossians 2, 14 says this. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He nailed my sin to the cross. I don't have to bear it because he's already paid for it. You know, when Jesus was on the cross, right before he died, he said the word tetelestai. It means it is finished. It is done. And, and back in those days, they would use the word tetelestai like in business transaction. And so maybe you had a bill that was due or outstanding. And when it was finally paid, they would stamp it tetelestai. It is paid in full. It is finished. And whenever Jesus died for me and whenever Jesus died for you, he said tetelestai, it is paid in full. The bill and the balance have been paid. Now, if you are outside of Christ, you still have a balance due. And one day you're going to have to pay for it. But thank God he's already paid the balance for those who put their faith in Christ. And Satan wants to deceive you into thinking, you, you don't really need Jesus. Apart from Jesus, there is no hope. Jesus is our payment for our sin. So I want you to notice there's a result of demons. There's a reality of demons. But I also want you to notice the recognition by demons. Look at verse 6. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran, the demon, the demoniac, he ran and worshipped him. And he cried out with a loud voice say, and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. Isn't that interesting? You know, the, the demons don't need any help with their Christology. They know who Jesus is. The Bible says that they were there before they rebelled. And then once they rebelled, they, they were kicked out of heaven. So they know who Jesus is. And these demons referred to Jesus as the son of the most high God. Did you know, just in a few chapters earlier, in Mark chapter 1, verse 34, Jesus would not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. And he kept them silent. And the demons at this point knew more about Jesus than the disciples did. They knew who Jesus was. And this man came running up to Jesus and he was possessed by these demons named Legion, which means many. And I think this is ironic. The demons bowed before Jesus and they threw themselves at his feet. And the Bible says they worshipped him. You know the demons will bow before Jesus when men will not. 
the demons worship and bow down. And these demons knew the authority that was before them. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 10, you need to write this verse down because one day you're going to see it come to reality. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 10, it says that at His name, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. Those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth. One day, every knee will bow and confess Jesus as the Son of the Most High God. So we don't need to be walking around proud of our Christology. The demons confessed Jesus. They knew Him. They knew their Christology, but they also knew their eschatology. You know, eschatology is the study of end times. They understood how things were going to end. But they already said, Jesus, don't torment us. They knew that their day of doom was was on the horizon. And in Matthew 25, 41, I think it's interesting that the Bible says that God created hell for the devil and his demons. That's why God created hell. And they know that their day of doom is coming. And Satan is not going to be the warden in heaven. He's going to be an inmate. A lot of people think, you know, Satan's in hell controlling everything. No, he is an inmate. He will be an inmate in hell one day. In James chapter 2, verse 19, James says, you know, you believe in God, well, you do well. Even the demons believe and they tremble. They tremble. The demons believe in God and they tremble. You know what's strange? People tremble at demons, but demons tremble at God. People tremble when they think about demons, but demons tremble when they think about God. You ever wonder why that is? You know what a lost person will do? A lost person will be more afraid of demons than they are the divine. They'll be more afraid of goblins than they are of God, a holy God, that they'll have to give an account to one day. You know what Jesus said? Jesus said, if you want to fear someone, you fear God. Listen to what he says in Luke chapter 12, verse 5. Jesus said, but I'll show you who to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has the power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. And if I was a lost person, I would be fearing a holy God. And yet people don't fear fear him. But the demons, when they met the divine, they worshipped him. They trembled at him. They confessed him. The demons recognized Jesus. But I also want to give you another thought. We have a result of demons. We have the reality of demons. We have the recognition of demons. But I want you to see our response to demons. How should we respond? You know, people have a tendency to respond to demonic in one of three ways. Some people are enamored by the demonic. They're entertained by it. You know, in Acts chapter 16, it tells the story of a servant girl who was who was possessed by an unclean spirit, a demon. And so she had just some, some kind of ability to kind of predict the future in some way. And so her master was making a lot of money off of her until Paul came and cast the demon out, changed the game. But you know, I was down in New Orleans a few years ago, and there was a whole block in downtown New Orleans where all these people were fortune-telling and using tarot cards and all those things. They were being entertained by what God says is demonic. Sometimes we're entertained by the demonic. Sometimes we're terrified of demons. I mean, some people see demons around every corner. No matter where they look. I mean, everything that happens, it's a demon, it's a demon. They see demons around every corner. I read a story about a um, guy was walking across a graveyard one night. It was dark and he couldn't see. And they had an open grave. And, you know, back then I don't think they covered the grave. And he's walking through the graveyard and it's open. And he didn't see it and he fell in the grave. And when he fell in, he said, i got to get out of here. So he's trying to get his way out. And he realized it's too deep and he can't get out. He said, well, I'll just wait here till in the morning and somebody will find me in the morning and I'll get out. 
So he's sitting in this grave in the dark, you know, just waiting for morning to come. And while he's sitting there, just another guy comes walking through the grave, graveyard. And he doesn't see the grave either. And the next thing you know, this guy falls into that same grave with that other guy. Now, he didn't see the other guy in there. So he's trying to get out. And all of a sudden, he hears a voice say, it's no use. You can't get out. And when he said that, the guy got out. Sometimes we just see demons everywhere, and we're terrified of demons. And then a third response is we just ignore the reality, like it's not even real. And Jesus was not entertained by demons. Jesus was not terrified by demons. And Jesus didn't ignore demons. Jesus really gives you some insight how to respond. And I want to give you some verses to put in your back pocket so you'll know. In Luke chapter 4, verse 8, Jesus is having a, a battle with Satan. And this is how Jesus re- responds. Jesus answered and said to Satan, Get behind me, Satan. For it is written... You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. So first of all, Jesus knew the God's word, and He worshipped God. And then He said, get behind me, Satan. And Satan had to obey. So we have that ability to tell Satan to get behind us in the name of Jesus. And we need to make sure that we are functioning on God's word. And then I think about James 4.7. In James 4.7, He says, submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee. The first thing you need to do is submit to God and his word. And then the Bible says resist and he will flee. We have a defense mechanism. God has given us the ability to resist. And I want to give you one last one. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11, Paul said this. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And then in verse 14 of that same chapter, he says this, Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And then you take the helmet of salvation, And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Those are your weapons. That's your armor for defending yourself against Satan. If you're going to stand against the wiles, the temptations, the deceptions, the oppressions of Satan, you need to put on the whole armor of God. Now, we've got power to resist evil. That's how we're to respond. We don't need to be afraid of it. We don't need to be enamored by it. And we don't need to ignore it. We need to prepare for it. Let me give you the last thing. In closing, I want you to see the rescue from demons. The rescue. The Bible says that Jesus came to this man who was dominated by demons. I mean, God has has created every single person with a God-shaped void. All of us have a God-shaped void. You know, nature, we talk about this on Wednesday night. You know, nature does not like a void. Something's going to fill that void. Something will fill it. And in this man's life, there was a God-shaped void, and God wanted to fill it. But no, he wanted something else to fill it. So he began to fill that void with other things. And eventually, the demons kind of took over, and now he was enslaved. He was in bondage, and he couldn't get out. He was trapped. And God wanted to fill that void, but he didn't let God fill it. The Bible says that here's this man trapped. He's violent. He's vile. And the Gospel of Matthew said he was so violent 
that when people tried to pass by, they couldn't do it. Because that's how violent this man had become. And then one day, Jesus came. And when Jesus came, Jesus saw this man was wretched. He saw this man was helpless. And Jesus rescued him. Jesus delivered him. Jesus cast out that demon. Jesus set the man free. Look at verse 15. Then they came to Jesus, and they saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion. He was sitting and clothed in his right mind. Now, that's what Jesus does. Jesus makes a change. Jesus took a vile, wicked, violent man, and he put him in his right mind. He clothed him. And there he was, sitting at the feet of Jesus. Jesus can do a miraculous work, can he? He can change a wicked heart and make it new. And people saw this man in his right mind. And you know what they wanted? They wanted Jesus to leave. They wanted Jesus to leave. But you know what that man wanted? He wanted to be next to Jesus. Look at verse 18. When he got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged Jesus that he might be with him. However, Jesus did not permit him. But he said to him, you go home to your friends and you tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how, how he's had compassion on you. And look at verse 20. And he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him. And everybody marveled. Can you imagine what it must have been like when that man went from that tomb? He's on his way back to his old house where he used to live. He walks down the streets and the mama say, get in the house, kids. And everybody starts getting into the house and they lock their doors. And he goes up to the house where, where he was, where he was living. He gets to that house and all of a sudden a little boy, maybe his son, comes up to the door. He says, mommy, it's daddy. He looks different. His hair is combed. He's dressed he has a smile on his face. He doesn't look mean anymore. Something's different. Can you imagine what that would have been like? The Bible says that this man went to Decapolis telling the news of what Jesus had done. You know, Decapolis means ten cities. He went to ten cities telling them about what Jesus had done to liberate him. Let me ask you a question. Have you been rescued by Jesus? Have you been forgiven by Jesus? Has he pulled you out of darkness into his light? Are you telling people about Jesus? Who's the last person you told about what Jesus has done for you? Who have you told? You know, I read a story about a farmer in China who, who couldn't see. And he was there in China and there was a, a missionary, a mission house nearby. And so he, he walked to this mission house. He couldn't see. He had cataracts. You know, they say cataracts makes it hard to see. I've never experienced that. But people say that it's like that. And so he went to this mission, and they realized he just had cataracts. And they said, hey, if we can just get those cataracts off, he'll be able to see. And so they, they were able to get the surgery for him, and, and he, they removed those cataracts. And they say when, you, when cataracts come off, your color is so vivid. And so now this man is seeing in technicolor. And he's like, oh, this is awesome. And so he stayed there a few days, and then he left. And then the missionary one day looks out of the window, and he sees that same man coming back, but he's got a rope in his hand. And on that rope are a string of people that he's leading back to that mission because he wants them to be able to see like he sees. Who are you leading to Christ? 
Some people don't share Jesus because they really have never been rescued by Jesus. You know, a few years ago, I was working with a group of young people. I said, okay, I want you all to write your testimony out because everybody said they were believers. I said, I want you to write your story out. I want you to write, you know, what life was like before you met Christ. I want you to tell the story about how you came to Christ, who led you to Jesus, and then talk about what life's been like since you've been saved. And this uh, one person came to me later and said, you know, I I was going to write that out. And I realized as I started to do that, I've been in church all my life. I worked in vacation Bible school, but I never have a story. There's never been a point in my life where I trusted Christ. You know, some reason, sometimes we don't share because we don't know. Or maybe this morning, that's your story. And you need to come and say, I want to be saved. I need to trust Christ. Or maybe this morning, uh, you need to commit to sharing your story. Or maybe this morning as we come to our invitation, you realize I know somebody's in bondage, maybe a family member, maybe a friend who's in bondage, and I want to pray for their deliverance, and I want to ask God to let me be an instrument if he wants to use me in that regard. Or maybe you just need to come and say, God, would you rescue my friend, my family member who's in bondage? Would you do that? Would you pray for them? Let me encourage you to do that as we come to our invitation. Would you pray with me this morning? Well, Lord, I just want to thank you for your word. I thank you for the hope that we have in Christ this morning. I want to thank you for this story because we see that you are victorious over the things that hold us in bondage. I want to thank you for this story because you remind us that you set the captive free. Lord, I want to thank you for this story because you remind us that you're greater than the enemy. I want to thank you for this story because you have proven that everything in this world will one day worship you, the creator. And Lord, I thank you for the story because through it you give us wisdom and discernment. But Lord, right now I realize there are people in this room that have never put their confidence in you. Maybe they've been deceived. Maybe they've allowed other things to fill the void that you created. And maybe this morning they need to surrender. I want to pray for them. Lord, I pray for those that might be here this morning that know somebody who's in bondage or is in captivity and they, they need to be an instrument. Maybe they just need to come and just pray for them this morning. I pray you give them courage to do so. Help us to be obedient when you call us. And not to sit by. And so Lord as we come to this invitation. We just ask you to help us to respond like you lead us. And we ask it in Jesus name. To every question. The one solution.